necessary. We find such a warning in the ministry of our Lord here in Matthew, the 12th chapter. I would that we began reading in verse 22 and we'll read down through verse 32. Matthew 12, beginning with verse 22. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their heart, their thoughts, and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons or devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Therefore, I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world or age, neither in the age to come. As we have studied chronologically the life and ministry of our Lord, we have seen the opposition to Christ grow from especially one circle, one group, the scribes and the Pharisees. You'll remember that that opposition began back there that day at that house when that paralytic man, the man sick of the palsy, was lowered through the roof and lay there before Jesus at his feet and everyone just thought they knew what would come next out of our Lord's mouth. Man, take up thy bed and walk. And instead, what Jesus says stuns them. He says, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And this crowd, the scribes and the Pharisees, began to murmur among them, saying, Wait a minute, we got him now. Did you hear that? He's just blasphemed. For who has the right to forgive sin but God alone? How dare this one declare a man's sins forgiven? Well, they had just one little problem. Jesus turns and says, So that you will know that I have power on earth to forgive sin. Man, take up your bed and walk, and up he pops. And they all scratched their heads saying, my, we have seen strange things today. And then a little later, there were those two episodes concerning the Sabbath day. The first thing, his disciples gleaning the grain, rubbing them in their hands, eating of the seed. And then, of course, that day in the synagogue on the Sabbath day when Jesus told the man with a withered hand to stretch it forth and healed him. 
And immediately in the minds of the Pharisees, if you try to think of how their logic works, it works like this. Well, this man simply cannot be of God. I mean, here he's violated the Sabbath. We know God wouldn't do that. But on the other hand, he has done this miracle that we cannot deny. He has done something by a supernatural power. So, he must be healing men by some other supernatural power than the power of God. And what other supernatural power is there except the devil's power, Satan's power? So you see, they cannot deny the fact of the miracle, but they can slander the power by which the miracle has been done. And that is precisely what is going on in our text. Everyone else looks at this amazing thing, this devil being cast out of a man who can't speak, who can't see, and suddenly he can do both. And everyone is amazed. They say, look, this has got to be the son of David. Of course, that's a phrase meaning the Messiah. This is clearly the promised Messiah. Who else could do these things? And it's amazing that the Pharisees look at exactly the same evidence and come up with the opposite conclusion. They said, no, this is nothing. This is the devil's work. Well, the devil is certainly doing strange work for the devil, number one. But notice, this is one of those can't-win situations. One of those questions like, do you still beat your wife? You know, how whatever, you, whichever way you go. If you do not do good works, they say, well, you're not the Messiah. If you do evil, you can't be the Messiah. If you do good, that really proves you're not the Messiah. So the better your works, in the minds of Pharisees, the worse the testimony against you. They say, no, he's casting out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Now that takes us back. Beelzebub. The first time we ever encounter that name is back in 2 Kings chapter 1. Ahaziah, one of the kings of Israel, has fallen through a roof. He's hurt, laying sick, doesn't know if he's going to survive or not. He sends his messengers down to the Philistine city of Ekron. There, there is a temple, a place of worship to this Phoenician god, Beelzebub. The word literally means Lord of the flies. And you know the novel by that name is where it comes from. Well, that's what this word means, but um, the King James, I think here, has it wrong. In the text, most texts, it is not Beelzebub, it is Beelzebul. Beel, B-E-E-L or B-A-A-L, is simply a word that means Lord. And Zebul, Z-E-B-U-L, if we transliterated it, is a word that means temple. Lord of the temple, and presumably what they're saying is Lord of an idol's temple, the, the Lord, the, the God of these idolatrous temples. And then there are some scholars who say, no, it's not Z-E-B-U-L, it's Z-I-B-U-L, which was a word that meant to spread manure. So it is calling him, and, and notice some of the text, if you compare the accounts, it is not just saying that Jesus is himself doing these things by the power of Beelzebub, but by being possessed by Beelzebub. And in this case, it would mean the Lord of manure. At the least, whatever the, the rendering is, it is an insumptuous title, a blasphemous Statement at the very least. It is the kind of statement that Jesus equates with that awful word blasphemy 
And it gives then the basis of this warning that is about to follow. Now let's see how Jesus responds to this charge that he's casting out demons by Beelzebub. First of all, he points out the utter absurdity of that. He says, first of all, that would mean that Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. If Satan is casting out Satan. Now to understand what that's really saying, consider going into battle. Let's say we're in trench warfare, like in the First World War. And, you know, all of a sudden the enemy comes charging out of their trenches and you're ready to start shooting when every other person in the trench with you, instead of shooting at the enemy, turns their guns on you. You see, it's the idea if Satan's kingdom is divided against itself, then why are we fighting? I mean, let's just stand back and let the same thing self-destruct. Satan is in the process of destroying his own kingdom. Do you see his logic? In other words, Satan's kingdom could not possibly stand if Satan is divided against himself. Then the second reason he gives them is the situation of their own exorcists. Now, the Jews did have exorcists in their midst. Do you remember the very humorous story over there in the book of Acts about the seven sons of Siva that are trying to exorcise this demon? And uh, says, we assure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demon responds, uh, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And jumps on them, rips their clothes off, and the seven of them go running down the street naked. I, that's funny to me. I don't know. Y'all may not get much of a laugh out of that. But to me, that's an absolutely hilarious story. And it certainly got the attention of the city of Ephesus where it occurred. You remember that after that, many of them brought their occultic books and trinkets and so forth and burned them. And Jesus is pointing out the fact that you have your own exorcists who indeed employ the very same power that I am employing. And if I am doing this by the power of Beelzebub, it calls into question your own sons, your own children. By whom then are they doing it? Do you see the point? In other words, it just brings the whole process into question. You don't question them. Why are you questioning me? When they cast out devils, you say, this is a work of God. Why is it different in my case? And then, thirdly, you'll notice he makes reference, if I by the Spirit of God cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. It's interesting to compare Luke's account here, and he uses the little phrase, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons. Now, that's a strange way. I, I lived among the Mormons for ten years, and one of the distinctives of Mormon doctrine is that God actually has a body. And when the Scriptures talk about God's arm or his hand, that it's absolutely talking about an arm and a hand. Of course, I used to ask them about Psalm 91, where it talks about God gathering his people as a hen doth her chicks under his wings. Under his wings I've come to trust. And the Almighty said, well, this means he has wings like a chicken. Well, the point is, these are figures of speech. We understand when it says that God does this by his mighty arm. We understand what that means. Or when he does this by his hand. Well, what does it mean when Jesus says, if I by the finger of God cast out demons? I mean, if you use your just your finger to do something, what you are emphasizing is how easy it is. Is that not true? I, I, could do, I could lift that with my little finger, we say. 
And so it is that Jesus points out one other little fact that they are ignoring. The absolute ease with which he cast out demons. You see, the Jews, their exorcists, would use all of these. We have that example in the book of Acts, these incantations. I assure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches, these somewhat magical phrases, these long ceremonies. And when Jesus comes upon the scene, well, let's put it this way, it just doesn't take very long. It's not a question if the demon's going, it's just when and where. You remember when he came into contact with the Gadarene maniac? It's just a matter of, uh, are you going to come to torment us before the time? And can we, oh, by the way, sir, can we go into that herd of swine over there? It's not a question whether they're going or not. It's just to where they're going to go. Do you see the sense in which Jesus comes upon that scene down there at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration? His disciples have labored in trying to cast this demon, and he can't do it. They can't do it. They're powerless. Christ comes upon the scene, and how difficult is it for him? He just speaks, and it's done. Do you understand there's something peculiar about the ministry of Christ? Others may labor intently and intensely, but not Christ. All he has to do is speak, say the word. He's just with the finger of God performing these works. And so he he counters their charge with these three observations that really make their charge absolutely absurd. And so, after countering this, he then introduces the subject of what we call the unpardonable sin. By unpardonable, we mean a sin that is never to be forgiven, as he puts it, not in this age nor the next, without possibility of forgiveness. Now, first of all, what is this unpardonable sin? Well, I'm not going to keep you in suspense. And let me say there is a great deal of controversy and disagreement. Other people have other ideas. In studying the Scripture, I believe the unpardonable sin is this. To blasphemously reject the Holy Spirit's testimony concerning Christ. It is the cold, calculated, blatant thrusting away of the witness of the Holy Spirit. I mean, let me say it again. The cold, calculated, blatant, thrusting away. Get away from me. The thrusting away of the witness of the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus Christ. It is, first of all, knowledgeable sin. You say, preacher, why aren't you out on the streets preaching as to the lost folks out there on the, on the road? For this fact, they can't commit this sin. This is not a sin that can be committed by those people who are out there in darkness. It is knowledgeable sin. It is sin committed by folks like us. You and me. People who have the light. You, you can't sin against the light if you don't have the light. And you say, well, well, you're talking about these, you know, these dead Christian churches around these cold storage mausoleums. No, I'm not even talking about them. I'm, I'm afraid the typical church in our day in the United States, there's not enough light there to sin against it, to commit this sin. 
This is a sin committed not by those who don't know the issues, but those who see the issues, who see them clearly. Do you see the Pharisees? Do you understand what they're doing here? They're basically saying, we don't care what evidence you've put in front of us. If Jesus cast out a demon, if he heals a sick man, if he raises a man from the dead, we will receive it as the work of the devil, not the work of God. You, you understand what I'm saying? What evidence are you going to put in front of their face that they're going to receive, that they're going to accept? What witness? What's the Holy Spirit going to bear witness of that they will receive it? They love darkness and not the light. And so, you see, it is not a matter that they don't know enough. No, they know plenty. And it is clear that as much as they know, as much as their eyes have witnessed, seeing more isn't going to change the situation. They've been given the truth. They've been given the light. I sometimes in back, especially 10, 15 years ago, when we were in the DOS world of computers, I have phone calls from somebody off in Timbuktu wanting to know, you know, I'm, I want to do this, but I'm scared. I don't want, if I hit this key, I'll erase everything and, you know, the type. You may be the type for all I know. But anyway, you know, I have this morbid fear that they're going to hit a key on the computer keyboard and the thing's going to blow up. And I would always reply and say, well, trust me, you don't know enough to be dangerous. You know, it's okay. You don't know enough to be dangerous. But I'm telling you, folks, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. For it doesn't take very long, and they learn about that D-E-L, that delete command. And they call up and say, well, I, I was entering, I was doing this, and I hit D-E-L, asterisk, dot, asterisk. Oh, my heart sinks. Because you see, now they know enough to be dangerous. And so it is, there's a sense in which men who are in darkness, men who have never been confronted with the light of the truth and the glory of God are not in the position to commit this sin. They don't know enough to be dangerous. It is knowledgeable sin. Let me just give you a couple of other places where scholars believe the same sin is in view. Hebrews 6, for instance, that's a very enigmatic text. Hebrews 6, and I just want you to notice the, the common thread that runs through all these passages. Hebrews 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Let's go on, in other words, the writer saying, on from these elementary things. In verse 3, he says, This we will do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once, and notice this word, enlightened. Literally, the Greek word is illuminated. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened or illuminated and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. And these are strong phrases. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. Now I just want you to notice that whatever this is that they're doing, they cannot be brought to repentance again. If they've done this, I had a Church of Christ roommate in college who believed you could lose your salvation. He believed you could be saved and lost a hundred times a day. I'd ask him, you leave the room, go out here in the street and get hit by a truck. 
will you go to heaven or hell? He said, well, it just depends on whether I had my sins confessed, whether I was in fellowship with God in a state of grace at the moment. I said, well, the best thing we could do is get you in a state of grace and just shoot you dead. We got you. We got one. We'll make sure, you know, catch you on a good day and get you there. Uh, anyway, he liked to pull out this passage and he said, well, doesn't this teach that a person can lose their salvation? I said, if it does, it teaches they can only lose it once. There's none of this back and forth, in and out of a state of grace. If it is talking about a man losing his salvation, you can only lose it one time. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That's what the text is saying. Now, I don't believe this is talking about a saved man. We might have a lot of different opinions about that, but let me just point out that word enlightened in verse 4. They were once enlightened. They were illuminated. These are not people who are out there in the darkness of the night in the world. They have the light. They've got a lot of light. And they are thrusting it away. In Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Here's this awful sin. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Notice, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fire indignation. In other words, he goes on in verse 29, speaking of this sin is trotting underfoot the Son of God, counting the blood of the covenant with which he was sanctified an unholy thing, doing despite to the Spirit of grace. And then notice verse 32, he says, But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were, what's the word? Illuminated. Same word, by the way, is chapter 6, enlightened. Same word in the Greek. After you were illuminated, you endured this great fight of afflictions. You see, this is a sin that is committed, as verse 26 tells us, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. It is knowledgeable sin. One other place, Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. Verse 20, here we're talking about teachers. And most of the time, by the way, this sin is committed, at least as it is seen in the New Testament, committed by those who are in a place of authority of some sort. In this case, those who are teaching others, false teachers. Chapter 2, verse 20 of Second Peter. If, for if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, notice again, the knowledgeableness of it, they are again entangled in it and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. In other words, again, they know. They've heard. The light has come to them. The knowledge of Christ is something that has been presented to them, at least in one fashion or another. You will notice that Jesus, in fact, as we go back to our text in Matthew 12, makes a statement here that you can blaspheme the Son of Man and be forgiven. He says, whatever is spoken against the Son of Man, which of course is his terminology for himself, the Messiah. Speak what you speak against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, he says, will not be forgiven. Now that's a strange statement. But I do believe we see the truthfulness of it. 
I mean, we think a sin that would be committed directly against Jesus Christ would be the most horrible act, the most likely candidate for an unforgivable sin. And yet I would have you remember that men spit in his face. They blindfolded him and struck him with a reed. They they grabbed handfuls of the hair of his beard and pulled them out. They beat him to a bloody pulp. They nailed his hands and his feet to a cross. Now, you say, what in the world could be worse than a sin like that? If ever there's an unforgivable sin, that must be it. Well, no, to be quite honest. Well, you say, how do you know, preacher? Because I hear my Lord say, Father, forgive them. Do you think Jesus would ask his Father to forgive the unforgivable? Father, forgive them. And why? For they know not what they do. Hmm. And Peter's saying, for those who know and turn away, better for them they had never known. Secondly, let's ask another question. Not only what this sin is, but why is it unforgivable? Why do you call it unpardonable or a sin that shall not be forgiven? Well, can I say that in a special, peculiar way... It is a remediless sin, a sin without remedy, because it is a sin against the remedy. Let me say it again. It is a sin without remedy because it is a sin against the remedy. I mean, how does salvation work? Well, I know some of you are going to say, good Calvinist that you are. Well, it works like this. You know, God chose some folks to be saved, and they were saved. That's just the way it works. Well, somehow I read in the Scripture that God has not only chosen the end, He's chosen His elect to be saved. Yes, that's true. But I also read in Scripture He has chosen the means to that end. Let's take Second Thessalonians 2.13 for an example. God has chosen you to salvation Through, how's it going to happen? In other words, he's not only chosen the end, salvation, but he's chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. There's this working of the Holy Spirit of God in the heart that, as it were, opens our heart to believe the truth of God as it has presented to us. Isn't that the way it worked? That's the way it worked with me. That's the way it worked for you. I find that's the way it worked in the New Testament. In fact, Paul will write to those same people at Thessalonica and say, Our gospel didn't come to you in word only. It came to you in power. You received it as it was in truth. Not just the word of man, but the word of God. That's how the saved are saved. But notice that this sin is a sin against that very means. The sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. It's men saying, we don't want the witness of the Spirit. We don't want the work of the Spirit in my heart and in my life. And I certainly am not going to believe the truth. Do you see what I'm saying? It is a sin without remedy because it is a sin directed at the remedy. And it's an amazing thing. You'll notice here that it's not so much the person of Christ himself. Men sinned against Christ and they were forgiven. 
But oh, my friend, when the testimony of the Spirit of God came to them and men thrust it away and God gave them over, God gave them up. When they make it clear, crystal clear, as we say, that they would not believe the truth but wanted to believe a lie, God gave them a lie to believe. Then I ask you, what hope is there for those who will sin against the remedy itself? Now, some of you may be saying that this has the sound of a truism about it. It's Truism is a circular logic. They, say, well, they might say, well, preacher, really all you're saying is an unbeliever who persists in unbelief winds up an unbeliever. I mean, that's really all we're talking about. The unforgivable sin is nothing more than man just holding out in unbelief. No, there's something more here than that. This is not just the typical unbelief that we meet with out there in the world. There's something peculiar about this. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 1 as Paul looks back on his own life. 1 Timothy 1 Verse 12. 1 Timothy 1, 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me in that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer. Now that's an interesting thing. Paul is saying, I used to be a blasphemer. And that itself is a pretty good testimony to the deity of Christ. Because to blaspheme is to speak evil of deity. Okay? And Paul, as a good old Pharisee, card-carrying member of the establishment there, of, of one who once used the name of Jesus, as so many do, as a byword, as a blasphemous oath slogan, Paul had hated the name of Christ, persecuting his people, dragging them out, compelling them to blaspheme, remember? torturing them till they would blaspheme the name of Jesus. I was, he says, a blasphemer. And a persecutor. And injurious. But I obtained mercy. Because I did it ignorantly. In unbelief. You see what we're dealing with here? A sin that is committed by those who know. And Paul, even though we would say, well, what didn't he know? Didn't he know the name of Jesus? Did he know about Christianity? Well, yes, he knew all that. But he speaks of the fact that he truly did not know who Jesus Christ was. That once he blasphemed the name of Christ. Now, I want you to think with me here. Is he not saying to us these words? Is this not what you can read between the lines that the sin that he once committed, the words that he let once come out of his mouth and used his tongue to pronounce, he has forgiven those blasphemous words. But what, Paul, if there's just words, if you were to say the same words today, now that you are Paul the Apostle, would those words be forgiven? Do you see what I'm asking? Same thing. But there's a difference between where Paul is 
now when he writes these things. The words that he once uttered in his hate, he dares not utter now. He said, well, wait a minute. He's an apostle. He's the elect of God. Yes, and he keeps his body under subjection. Lest after he has preached to others, he himself should be a castaway. The point is, is that he cannot say today the same things he said back then and expect to be forgiven. Do you see the point? He's in a different situation. He's not ignorant anymore. Let me give you, and I know, I I always hesitate when I preach on the impardonable sin. I realize that there are those with tender consciences who all they have to do is look at the sermon title and they are sure they've committed the impardonable sin. That's how tender their consciences are towards God. Then there are other folks who sit here and ought to be upset and concerned and care less. You understand? So I'm, I'm trying to be careful in how I present this doctrine. And I realize that to many of your ears, you're saying then, well, there really then is no such thing as assurance of salvation. Nonsense. Do you think Paul didn't have assurance of salvation? Well, you say, well, wait a minute. He's saying here that he might preach to others, but himself be a castaway. No, he's saying, I keep my body under control. Lest I should be a castaway. What he's saying is, I admire the grace of God, but I don't presume upon it. I don't say that this is a license that I now, Paul, because I'm forgiven, can go out there and commit anything I want to. I can cast off the name of Jesus Christ. I like the way Chuck Berry puts it. He says, well, now that I'm a Christian, I can sin all I want. That's right. Now that you're a Christian, you can sin all you want. But if you're a Christian, you're not going to want to. You say, well, I'm not going to want to sin much. No, you're not going to want to sin at all. Something's changed in your heart, in your nature. Yes, there is a thing as assurance of salvation. Blessed. But my friend, it is assurance and it is not presumption. I wanted to give you a quick illustration. Suppose a man is walking on a steep, slippery mountainside path in the night back in the days before electricity. And any moment he might slip to his doom, his death. He's out there on a dark, rainy night. On his journey, and he comes upon this house. Oh, it's brightly lit. And out in front, there is this sign. It says, This is the house of salvation. It says, Come and welcome. And, he's, and he sees it's warm and it's bright inside this house. So he, so he goes up to the front door and he opens and he goes into this ante room. Goes into the front room. And he looks, there's some large windows in the doors ahead of him, and he looks inside and he sees the place is packed with people and they're all sitting at a banquet table feeding on wonderful things. And there's a sign on the door that says, He that hath no money, come buy and eat. And so he's standing out there in the warmth, in the glow that's coming from that room within. And suddenly he notices there's another door off to his right. It's dark over there. He really can't see what's in that room. And for some reason, rather than going on into the banquet hall, he turns and he begins to walk through that dark 
door. And after he takes a few steps, all the light that has been streaming out into that room from the brightly lit banquet room, all that light is dissipated. And he's walking in utter darkness in this room. And unbeknownst to him, somewhere in the dark, he doesn't know quite where, somewhere in the dark, the floor gives way to an open shaft. But he walks, and he walks, and he walks. Now you say, well, wait a minute, why would someone, I mean, who in their right mind would would not come into this banquet hall where the good things are, where the light is, where the feasting's going on? Why would they turn and walk through that dark door? I can only think of one reason. Because they love darkness rather than light. My friend, there is a line. There's a point beyond which we dare not go. And I'll tell you, you search the Scriptures and you'll see people who cross that line. Look at Esau. Sold his birthright. Despised it, says the Word of God. And God said, that's it, fella. And after all the consequences that fell out, he's bawling his eyes out. Tough. He found no repentance, though he sought it with tears, the book of Hebrews tells us. God would not reverse the consequences of his action. He threw it away. He said, the things of God are not worth to me what a bowl of pottage is worth. Do you understand his sin? Look at Israel in the wilderness. They griped. They complained. They didn't have enough food, so God gave them manna. Didn't have any water, so He gave them water out of a rock. They still bellyached. Oh, wish we had that good stuff back there in Egypt. All we got to eat here is manna. And finally, said God said, "There, Kadesh Barnea. That's it." Ten times you've tested me, and that's it. You're going to go out into the wilderness, you're going to die. You see, there was a point that they crossed the line. And from that point on, they weren't going in. I didn't care what they did. In fact, the next morning, you read the account, they got up and said, well, if we're going to die anyway, might as well die trying to go into Kadesh Barnea, try to go into the land of Canaan. Moses said, boys, you don't know what you're doing. Don't you dare. They took off, got the pants whipped off of them. It's too late. And Judas. Mm. Judas. John's account of the Last Supper. Judas was sitting there with Jesus. I, I don't know exactly how it worked. It looks to me, when you read all the accounts, John, first of all, was laying there right next to Jesus. Peter's somewhere else. He's further away because he keeps hollering at John to ask this or that. John's laying right there at Jesus' chest. He's hearing everything going on. And Judas is close. Maybe on the other side of Jesus. Close by. And when they asked, who is it? Who'll do this deed? Selling him. Jesus said, he whose hand is with me in the sop. Or one of the accounts, he to whom I give the sock. It appears that Jesus and Judas both reach with a piece of bread to put it in the bowl of sock at the same time. And then 
Jesus went ahead and dipped his and as an act of friendship handed it to Judas. And in John's account, Jesus says to Judas, what you do, do, do quickly. And Judas got up and went out. And the text says, it was night. I think John's doing more there than telling us about the fact that it gets dark when the sun goes down. All the way through John's gospel, there is this contrast between light and darkness. Judas took the sop, got up from where the light of the world sat, and went out into the night. You say, well, but couldn't he have been forgiven? Couldn't I hear Jesus saying, Peter, I've prayed for you. But there's no prayer for Judas. Now, all of this to say, this is more than just somebody trying to scare us straight. These are the words of Christ himself. They're given to you and I to warn us. This is not just a boogeyman story. Christ taught it. Secondly, Scripture, as we have seen, confirms it. It gives us examples of those who committed this sin. And thirdly, can I call upon you this morning? I dare say there's not many of you who have been a Christian for many years who have not, in fact, witnessed those who seemed... And we can be surprised. Oh, my friend, there's people who go far from the Lord and he brings them back. I'm, I'm constantly amazed. I never give up on anybody because I'm telling you, I've seen some folks that I thought were going to bust hell wide open that God saved them, snatched them like a brand from the fire. But on the other hand, my friend, have you not seen those who walked with you for a while and renounced the faith, renounced their profession of Christ, and went back into the world, never to return. I dare say if you've been a Christian very long, you've seen this with your own eyes. Does it deny the fact of God's preservation of his people? My friend, Judas never was. That's what the text throughout the gospel records make clear. Judas never was one of Christ. From the beginning, Jesus knew he was a devil. It wasn't that he was shocked, surprised, From the very beginning it was so. Those people who said, Lord, Lord, in your name, we we cast out demons. We've done many wonderful works. He says, depart from me. I knew you once. I never knew you. And John speaks of those who went out from them. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Well, they looked like it. They were with us for a while, but they went out from us showing that they were never of us. No, this is not denying the wonderful doctrine of the preservation of God's saints. My friend, from a human perspective, take heed, brethren, ye who think you stand, lest you fall. And then may I close with the value of this doctrine. The comfort of this, you say, preacher, you're nuts now. I could have gone all year and not heard this sermon today. You know, what do you mean the comfort? 
of this teaching. Well, my friend, I hope that it does a lot of things, good things in your heart. I hope, for one, it arouses a holy hatred of sin. That you realize how deadly sin is. It is never to be accommodated. Never to be embraced. Sin destroys. It kills. If you think you can play around with it, you've got another thing coming. And may it cause you to see your need of Christ. Your need of a Savior. Oh, we get to the point that we think I'm beyond these things. I don't need to be told these things. You know, that may be what you need to tell some of these carnal Christians, preacher, but not me. You know, I've, I've made it a little further than that. My friend, you're the one I'm worried about. The fellow who thinks he stands, the fellow who thinks he doesn't need God's preserving grace and upholding hand. And then thirdly, I hope it comforts you to know that one of the best evidences that I have that you've not committed this sin is the fact that you're sitting where you are today. I mean, I mean, think about it. The man who hates the light, the last place you're going to find him is where the light is. Right? The very fact that, you know, it is an amazing thing. And this is the wonderful thing about God's preserving grace is, is that, you know, I wake up this morning and I have a desire to be with His people. I have a desire to hear His Word preached. That I'm still hungering after Christ and I know I'm, I'm fallible and I've, I've made a fool of myself. I've fallen flat on my face. But I want Christ. My friend, you want Christ? You can have Him. You say, well, wait a minute. What about Esau? What about Judas? What about the... My friend, they didn't want Christ. They may have wanted the good stuff. They didn't want to go to hell. They wanted the inheritance. They wanted all the bennies. But they didn't want Christ. If you want Christ, you can have Him. Come and welcome. And oh, what a comfort it is to know that that grace that called me out of sin so many years ago still is at work in my heart, still putting the desire in me to seek after the Master, that the hand that saved me is now preserving me and keeping me and sustaining me. And oh me, may God never, may God never turn me over to myself. Luke, in his account, says it's like a demon leaving a man, walks through dry places for a little while, comes back and finds the house swept and garnished, and he brings back with him seven other demons, and they move in, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Interesting little parable. The house got cleaned up for a little while. That's what's happening in these encounters. These people, they, they got a cleaned out house for a little while. But my friend, unless Christ occupies the house, the last state is worse than the first. Does Christ occupy the house in your case? Is he resident? Does he live within? Does he rule? Does he reign? 
Let's pray. Father, help us today. We struggle with this. Lord, it makes us fear if we know our hearts at all, how how prone we are to sin, how how dangerous our own lusts and the flesh is. Lord, just uh, how often we're seems that we're on the edge falling. Lord, we magnify your name today and praise you that the God who saves, preserves, and keeps and will one day present us before his throne. Thank you for a Jesus who a love of our master that loves us to the end, that will not let us go. And Lord, I know not the hearts I wish I could see into the hearts of those before me today, but Lord, I know not where everybody stands. I only know this, that we have one need, and that is Christ. And Lord, if he is not in the house today, if he's not, Lord, if if it's swept and cleaned up, and Father, on the outside, everything looks fine. Lord, if Christ does not rule and reign within And I pray that you might come in power upon my hearers, open their hearts to Jesus Christ, that they might know that in him and in him alone is life and salvation, that he who came to shed his blood to purge us from our sins, Lord, must be received. We must partake of him. Grace must be obtained, mercy found. May we, in fact, find it at his hands. Lord, I pray that you would give those who have not Christ within, and do not belong to him, I pray that you would give them no peace and no rest until they find that true rest in Jesus Christ our Lord. Bless your word today. Father, take the stumbling, bumbling words of this poor preacher and make them powerful. Make them speak. Lord, what I have spoken of myself caused my hearers to forget. But what is in accordance with your truth and your word, Lord, quicken it. Make it like a dagger that pierces the heart. Give no rest from it, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.